you just kind of want to sing right after him, don't you? Maybe we should. It will be a glorious day when we sing like that around the throne. Only with the song that the Savior's composed. Uh, And if you didn't know that Jesus was a composer of music, read Revelation 4 and 5, and you'll find out. I can't wait to sing that score. And we won't even have to rehearse probably, Ben. (laughs) Right? We'll just get it. Right? (laughs) Yeah, hard to believe, right? Right? Spoken as a true choir conductor and teacher. Um, If your heart was gripped by 2 Corinthians 8 and our time in prayer in relationship to the aspect of worship of giving, we do have boxes in the hallway. You can give that way in the hall and in the lobby as you leave. There's ways to to worship the Lord here, even online and giving to the Great Commission purposes here at Grace Church. You can contact us through our website. and Just want to make sure we're all worshiping with good consciences. You can't worship with a good conscience unless you're participating in all aspects of worship. If you're not participating in all aspects of worship on a regular basis, it's either A, you know the Lord and you're untaught, which certainly can be helped here, or You may know a lot about the Bible, but you don't know the Lord of the Bible. And you're okay doing some parts of religious worship, but not necessarily biblical worship. And you may need to know, come Jesus as your Savior. Uh, And maybe you'll find that out at the end of today's sermon, which is the last part of Romans 10. So if you want to go there, um, we'll find out this morning if we're merely religious or we are born again, made new. In Christ. And uh, hopefully, this text will help us increase in our burden for our religious friends who are lost as we seek to reach the unchurched who are lost uh, as well. I want to welcome back the Joan Fern Carafa. I don't know where you're seated, but it was great to see you this morning. There you are. I'm glad you're walking. And I'm so glad to have you back and looking forward to um, some temperatures that are more appealing, but uh, glad to have you back and you're healthy. We've been praying for you and good to see you. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 18 together. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Have they heard, right? Verse 18, did they even know? Verse 19, first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah, in very bold terms says, I have found by those who did not, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for religious people, he's speaking personally, obviously of his own people, his own family and religious nation, if you will. But really Israel just typifies all religions. And you can write that in the margin of your Bible. Within the context here, as we'll study on this morning, Israel just really typifies all religion. 
right? Because you either get to heaven by your own merit, and by the merits of mere religiosity, or you get to heaven through Jesus and his grace alone, okay? But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. We've already discussed, folks, that there are fewer, fewer greater agonies in our lives as Christians than watching our closest friends and relatives live out their religious lives without ever coming to a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. After our study of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, where Paul clearly details the good news of Jesus Christ for us, he comes to chapter 9 and expresses the personal turmoil he has over his own religious family and countrymen as they spurn, they reject a personal relationship with Jesus Christ while they continue to pursue their religious history and activities. The Roman believers were experiencing the same agony. After all, we know for a fact that not many formerly religious people are even members of the Church of Rome at this time when Paul wrote, writes to them. Religious souls know much about God, the Bible, and their particular histories, traditions, and writings. And religious souls depend on their family history, among other things, to assure their hearts that they are indeed in favor with God. I heard one pastor put it this way recently, and it simplifies the religious mind and heart for us. He said, the religious mind and heart are full of energy Sincerity and equity. Energy, sincerity, and equity. Energy, I do everything I can to be a good person. Sincerity, I really do believe what my family's taught me and what my church holds to. They're sincere. And they desire equity. Hopefully, at the end of my life, my good works will have outweighed my bad works. And I'll be welcome in heaven. Energy, sincerity, and equity is, these are the hallmarks of the religious life. But we all know that when pressed with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, most, if not all, religious souls will push back with any number of comments that would give proof that Jesus has a place in their life. He's just not governing their life. Every religious person, you know, longs for peace in their heart. Every soul desires to know what love is. Everyone wants security and some type of bliss in paradise after death. Our religious friends and family will at times clearly state how they come to peace, love, and eternal security in their own lives. And when they do, it's not difficult to see their journey to these three virtues and realities have come to them through religious activity and their own family history and not solely through a personal understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even if a religious someone says that they have come to peace and love and eternal security in their lives, there remains one matter unaddressed, and that's the way they live how they think, how they talk. Unbroken, sinful patterns 
remain in their lives. And they certainly, while they can do good things because they're made in the image of God, plus they are familiar with the various religious traditions and practices of their family and church, there still remains the fact that they've never surrendered to Jesus Christ alone as Lord in their lives, as sufficient, sufficient payment for the whole of their sin. Therefore, they have unbroken patterns of sin in their life. The spiritual soul governorship of Jesus in one life is rarely welcome in any culture in human history. And we see even today that religion spurns the mere idea of rule by one in your life. They spurn it. And that one who desires to solely rule in your life is king and divine despot, Jesus Christ himself. Regardless of the name of the religion, by its very nature, religion cannot and will not ever surrender to the sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Lord alone, as the focus of their life and worship. Like our culture, religious people just don't want and therefore do not see a need for a spiritual soul proprietor governing over them. Their parents and their bosses and maybe local and national government officials are just enough. But to have someone completely reign over their lives, including the matters and issues of their heart, they just can't comprehend that. They'll say, you know, Jesus is fine. I don't have any problem with him, but. They'll say, listen, I believe in Jesus and I was taught. They'll say, yes, Jesus is God. Or have you ever considered this? Religion is complete and replete with buts, ands, and ors. Again, by its very nature, Jesus will never and can never be because of their religiosity. They're all in all. We go back to energy, sincerity, equity. Do you know religious people who are trying to do all they can to remain a good person? Yes, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm a good person. I do believe with all my heart that which my family taught me and, and what my church teaches. And, and, and man, I just hope God's fair. In the end of the day, I just really hope he sees me as more of a good person than a bad person. As tiresome as it can become to persuade our religious loved ones and friends that Jesus is enough, it always honors God to continue to love them and pray for them until they understand Often it is our tendency as those who have come to understand the comprehensive love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to become frustrated and even somewhat angry with those who are holding on to the religious energy, sincerity, and equity. But Paul's disposition is different here. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 1 to 5, didn't we? We saw that again in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 where he says, my desire for them is that they would know. And my prayer for them is that they would understand the grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So there's agony, there's sorrow, there's shedding of tears. 
There's his own personal pain for his lost friends and loved ones, but we don't see any anger. We don't see any desire to put up your spiritual dukes and debate. Someone either knows Jesus personally or they just know about him with the ands, the buts, or the ors of religiosity. Okay? Paul begins to settle this agony, this grief, this sadness in his heart over the religious friends and family that reject the gospel by reminding himself in chapter 9 that, that God continues to save faithfully and mercifully and righteously. In chapter 10, he continues to admonish us to have hearts that desire, as we've already said, and pray for religious family and friends, even though they may not understand the righteousness and grace of God in Jesus Christ. In chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, the last time we were together, we were taught that even though our friends and family who are religious may misunderstand so they're not able to properly appropriate the righteousness and grace of God as we found in Romans 10, verses 2 to 13. That it is our responsibility to be the voice of the gospel to them. Each of us have a part in seeing our religious friends and families come to know the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And I always want you to know that Paul's greatest burden, and according to this context, was always for his religious family and friend. Certainly there is a burden for all the world to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but my friends, you and I will never be able to reach it by ourselves. Right? Thousands of churches networked together can do the work of the gospel globally. But right now, right where God has you, he has you personally around a handful And a handful of those folks might have a deep religious past. And what's your heart towards them? You say, well, Pastor Tim, I love to tell people about Jesus on, in planes, trains, and automobiles. Everywhere I go, I want to tell people about Jesus. And I say that's wonderful, but that's not your primary responsibility. Okay. Paul's saying here, my greatest grief are for my friends, my family. My closest religious associates, I long for them to be saved. Now, as a seasoned Christian, do you find yourself becoming angry, bitter, and somewhat of a debater with your closest friends and family who remain in religiosity? If you are, you need to confess your sin before the Lord, before the Spirit of God will use you in their lives. You need to develop the same compassion for them our Savior had that the Apostle Paul has. And we need to become like him, like them. And we find out, as we did the last time we were together, that we are the voice of the gospel, not just to the religious, but also to the irreligious. Three times, the end of chapter 9, twice in chapter 10, we're reminded that the religious have heard, they know, they understand, they spurn, only a remnant will be saved, but we still have a burden for those who have not yet to be saved, right? But the gospel's more readily received by the unchurched. At the end of chapter 9, middle of chapter 10, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Who's the, who's the whoever? 
Not just merely religious people, but also the irreligious, the unchurched. They're all welcome. And we're finding out again at the end of chapter 9 and end of chapter 10, we'll see this morning, that there's more who are unchurched and irreligious that are ready to know and understand and believe and trust Christ alone, even before the religious do. And my friends, when I say that, I want you to know how much of an immense offense that is to religious people. When you tell religious people who believe that Jesus came, he was born, he died, he was buried, he rose again. They believe he's the son of God even. Not all religions do, but some do. And you tell them that they've yet to be born again because they're full still of ands and buts and ors. And they still have the energy and the sincerity and the religious equity. When you tell them they're yet to be born again, that's a major offense to them. That their family history, though we honor it and we respect it, is not enough. That their loyalty to the religious organization is honorable and respectful, but it's not enough. There are no ands, buts, or ors when it comes to Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Nothing else you can do to come to the Father but through Him. Amen. Nothing. Nothing. No pastor can save you. No church can save you. No priest can save you. No baptism can save you. No communion can save you. No good work can save you. Nothing you can do can save you. Nothing I can do can save you. Only Jesus can save you. Amen. So Paul's burden was for those who are closest to him. And may that be a reminder to us for our burden to be the same. Okay? Lord, who have you put to me as my neighbor? Lord, have you, who have you put to me? You know, that's my family that's still religious that lives maybe within my house or in this area. Uh, and, and those are the people that were around the most that we may have, be, have given the gospel to the most that we kind of have a tendency to stop praying for. And Paul says, we still have a heart for these people. They may not listen, but still have a heart, still pray, still grieve for them. But at the same time, don't forget, there's a lot of unchurched and irreligious out there who are ready to hear too that God has given you close proximity to and put you together with. And, and of course, you know, in our American culture, like even cultures more east to us, the amount of irreligious, unchurched people is exponentially growing, isn't it? Even in the city of Mentor, 26% of our population has never stepped foot inside of a church for a church service in Mentor. A quarter of our population of 43,000 souls has never stepped in kind of any church. They say by the next generation, that's going to be over 40%. And then 65%. But for now, all of us are around plenty of religious people who are still sincerely in unbelief. And, and, and this is who Paul is discussing here. Okay. We find out from verses 14 to 17 that we looked at last time that religious souls associated with us must be called. They not, cannot be called until they hear. And they won't hear without your voice. 
and you will not speak unless you're divinely persuaded that God desires to send you. <laughs> Remember? 14 to 17. They may not relieve your report, but as the sent one, you know that faith only comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God about Jesus Christ. They've got to hear. We investigated the reality of verses 14 to 17. And now this morning for further help, Paul continues his remarks on the reality of the religious heart and mind to direct our hearts and to settle our hearts as he seeks to settle his own in relationship to the agony in his heart over religious unbelief. Paul utilizes here two more questions. He utilizes really a series of questions he began back in verse 14 to channel our thoughts back to the reality that reminds us of this. Religious people typically have enough information to be saved. They are just looking right over the truth because Jesus is never enough for them. Let me say that again. Religious people often have enough information to be born again. But the ands, the buts, or the ors added to him within religion convince them that Jesus is just part of their salvation, not their salvation alone. So 14 to 17 teaches us the why we need to be the mouthpiece of clarity and simplicity for them. And verses 18 to 21 is given to us to remind them at times that truth is mixed with religion that they've been taught. Because what does Paul say here in verse 18? We already read. But I say, surely they have not heard, have they? And what does he say? Indeed they what? They have heard him. They know. It's just the ands, the buts, or the oars. Have they not heard? Yep, they've heard. And then what does he say in verse 19? But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And Paul says, to settle his own heart. Oh, that's right. I knew. <laughs> so think about this. Paul wrestling with his former religiosity. Had I never heard? Oh, wow. I heard all my life. Through the law and the prophets. Jesus was all over the place. Just in the law and the prophets. I knew, I heard. Did I know? Yeah, I knew. I knew. I just always added mosaism to him. I never started with him. He was never enough to me. So that's why we get to be the ambassadors of clarity and simplicity and divine sincerity to let them know, look, it's not that hard. Jesus is enough. He alone can bring peace to your life. Again, this may be hard for some to swallow, but can I remind you folks what the definition of apostasy is? It's the mixing of truth with error. That's what apostasy is. That's what to turn away from truth is, apostasy. It's the mixing of truth with error. Religiosity is replete with truth, coupled with error. 
causes the turning away from the looking exclusively at Jesus alone for salvation. Paul settles this in his own heart by pointing out a couple more questions that we've already discovered. And so let's, let's look at these questions particularly as we close this morning. But this I say, surely have they heard? They haven't heard, have they? Remember, there are not too many formerly religious people now saved in the church at Rome at this time. So this question would probably not arise from within the church. Also remember, this church is in good spiritual health. So this question would not have arisen in an argumentative fashion from those within the church. And I only tell you that because commentator after commentator, when you study the book of Romans, is going to tell you that these were argumentative questions put to the Apostle Paul in somewhat of a debate format, and they weren't. Now, I know in Scripture, other Scripture, that did happen. You got a whole Acts 15 to answer those questions brought up in a debate format. But here, this is Paul continuing to settle his own heart from Romans 9, 1 to 5 and Romans 10, 1. And he's helping collectively settle the heart of the Roman church who now knows explicitly the gospel personally, but also in its uh, nature and in its power and its detail from chapters 1 to 8. So these are just natural questions. All right. My religious mom, my religious dad, my religious siblings, my religious co-workers, my religious neighbors, have they ever heard? And Paul's saying, settle your heart. They know. Remember, they've just added two. So it's kind of meant that he asks this question not to be combative, but to be settling. They know. You don't have to persuade them what they already know. The clarity comes in teaching them the simplicity of just Jesus Christ and nothing else. So settle your heart. And then when you begin to pray for them, Lord, help them begin to understand at least part of the truth that they already have heard. They've heard it. They've just added to him. Certainly they know. Paul responds with an answer, didn't he? How well have they heard? <laughs> and this again is to settle our hearts, not to get our blood boiling. Paul's saying, hang on, hang on. They do know. They just weren't satisfied with God's final answer that is Jesus alone, okay? They know. Indeed, they have heard, the second part of verse 18 says, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He utilizes here Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. He utilizes the description of creation's influence on all mankind. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth its handiwork, Right? Day unto day, creation utters a speech, and night unto night shows us order and knowledge. Why does he quote a text from a song in Psalms from chapter 19, verses 1 and 2? I'm going to explain to you why he does this. He's basically saying truth has been made plain to them, 
as clear as you may see stars on a cloudless night where there's no light pollution. Truth in its power and glory and scope has been heard and spread throughout religious communities for all time. Just like creation is seen by all and its beauty and clarity is seen by all, so truth has been heard by all within various religious communities. And Paul's saying, it was certainly heard in mine. Folks, have you ever been to a religious funeral? And during the funeral, while part of the Bible was being read from the Old or New Testament, you feel your heart begin to resonate with the truth of the Bible being read in that religious ceremony. And your heart just actually wants to, in that church that's merely religious, your heart wants to say, Amen. But then the addition to the truth is proclaimed. And instead of an amen, you say, oh no. <laughs> it was really good, but uh, no. Jesus is enough, right? Remember Luke 24 that we read two weeks ago as our Easter reading? Jesus and his post-resurrection appearance is walking with these two sincere men. They don't recognize it's him until he departs from them at dinner. And what did Jesus do? He expounded to them all that was about him from Moses and the prophets, right? They knew. They had heard. Jesus was just reviewing what they had already heard right? about himself, right? Just about himself. Just about himself. He didn't, he didn't review Moses and the prophets for Moses' purposes. He wasn't reviewing Judaism for Judaism's sake. He wasn't reviewing the, the law for the law's sake. He was reviewing all that the law and all that the prophets had to say, leading up to him as the answer and the pinnacle of all truth for all time. Amen. Jesus, it's me alone, fellas. I've walked a long way with you, sincerely sharing me with you from the scriptures you've heard. It's all about me, fellas. It's all about me. Will you see me? And praise God at the end of the chapter, their eyes were opened and they saw it was what? Moses. So it was Jesus. It was Jesus. Recall David's words in Psalm 19, 7, in addition to the ones he just quoted from the earlier part of the chapter, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. He's saying there the Torah, the teachings of the books of Moses is just enough. The first five books of the Old Testament is enough for someone to understand, comprehend, and surrender their lives to Jesus Christ alone. And yet he's given us so much more revelation, inspired and preserved for our learning even today. So from creation to the revelation of the scriptures to the practice of the scriptures and the religious cultures, Paul is saying they have heard. They've heard. Indeed, they've heard. So when we pray for them, pray that the Spirit of God will be loyal to, he is loyal, pray that he'll use that which he's inspired to prick their hearts. 
That which you can say amen to, pray that they get it. And that which you could say, oh, no, too. No, Lord, arrest their attention that Jesus is enough. Arrest their attention to the amen and not the oh, no. Pray for them. And then when you have the opportunity, it just really makes our conversation with them so much more simple, doesn't it? In verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? So he goes from David's writing in Psalm 19 to the hymn of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And he makes a very, very sound statement here. Oh, they knew. They not only heard, they knew. They understood. This is a cognitive, volitional rejection to decide that Jesus was not enough in their life. They would recognize him, but not solely own him as their Lord and Savior. He says, they knew so well, right? And in the Psalm of Moses, verse 19, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. He's talking about the Gentiles. You heard and you understood, and only a remnant of you has been saved. So the most of you, right? I'm going to now take the truth to the people that I did not make a nation, the Gentiles. And by a nation without understanding, those who had never heard, those who had never given the opportunity to understand, I'm going to take the good news of Jesus to the unchurched, and they're grasping it. They're getting it. Because they're just hearing him, and they've not had a chance to have a lifelong lived to add anything to him. It's just him. Belief in Jesus Christ alone, is a lot easier to comprehend when you don't have religiosity attached to that message, my friends. That's what Paul's saying here. It is hard to fully trust in Jesus alone when religiosity is attached to him. But when it's just Jesus and just Jesus alone, oh, wow, that's simple. That's simple. That's love. That's peace. Okay. And so he goes from Moses in verse 19 to Isaiah in verse 20. And Isaiah is very bold. <laughs> I, you know, the clarity here, the emphasis in the grammar is really powerful. Moses says, right? Isaiah is bold and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. That's the Gentiles, the unchurched, if you will. I became manifest to those who did not, what? Ask for me. These were people who were not petitioning me in religious prayers. It's a context of prayer. These are non-praying people. It's not only they don't even know anything about God's word. They don't even know anything about prayer. They don't even pray to anybody. These are completely godless people. They understand the simplicity of who Jesus is. And I had you a couple weeks ago cross-reference here at the end of verse 20, chapter 9 and verse 30, where Paul reiterates the same sentiment. So from one of the earliest prophets in Scripture, Moses, to a later 8th century prophet, Isaiah, we learn that religious Israel had heard and they knew. And the only way we know they knew 
is that the Gentiles, who were not to be the initial recipients of the good news of Jesus Christ, responded to the innate power of the message that was not first for them. What they heard initially, religious people had rejected for the whole of their life. Because Jesus was included, but never enough. What does verse 21 say as we wrap up? But as for religious people, this is what God says. As he quotes, I believe, verse 2 of Isaiah 65. All the day long I have stretched out my hands. Is God merciful? I read a lot about what this phrase, all the day long, means. And I think the most clear, the most clarity I received was from an author who said, because he's specifically speaking here to Israel, all the day long, this would have been in reference to the, the age of the law. From the time of Moses to the time of the church, all day long, like Jesus in Luke 24, from Moses to the prophets, he explicated himself. For you religious people, you have had not days, months, weeks, and years, not just generations, you've had multiple millennia of time. All the day of the age of Mosaism, I have reached out my hand. And the idea is here is to help someone who's drowning I've reached out my hand. I've stretched every muscle in my divine being to persuade you through all these things that Jesus is enough. He's enough. Take him. Take him. Please take him. So I believe in him. But I don't necessarily need just him. You had a chance. You had a chance. You had a chance. And then he adds an indictment that tells them how they know that they turn their back on their chance. What does he say in the last part of verse 21? I reached out my hand to you. I stretched out my hand to you all the day long to what kind of a people? disobedient and obstinate. I think there's a reason for that order. What did we say the last time we were together? The number one thing that defines someone who knows a lot about Jesus but doesn't know him is that their life hasn't changed. It wasn't that they were primarily assured of heaven versus hell. Right? There was nothing demonstrative in the way they think, the way they talk, the way they act that demonstrated someone else had taken them over in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Still unbroken sin habits. Still laden with guilt, shame, sorrow, grief. Still carrying about the encumbrances of this old world. Still carrying that burden around. I believe in Jesus, but I still have a burden. I believe in Jesus, but I still have a burden. No, Jesus takes the burdens all away. He takes them all away. Just him. Just him.
we've already said we need to have a sincere burden for religious unbelief that's closest to us. Sincere, gracious, patient burden. Prayed, prayed up burden. But we can never do that at the expense of having a burden for the unchurched. God has also put you around many people, increasingly so in the age to come, of people that have never even heard the name of Jesus outside of a cuss word. And we've got to be ready to present him to them with love and sincerity. Okay? So these two questions. Have they heard? Yes. Do they know? Yes. That helps us know how to pray, and then it helps us know how to speak. Right? And it should settle our hearts, not complicate things as we move forward. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the simplicity of Paul's heart here as he wrestles his own life, his own mind, his own soul through the agony of religious people around him he loves so much that just say no to the sufficiency of Jesus. We know, Lord, that so many of our friends and family don't say no to Jesus. They just add to him. He's never enough. Help them, Lord, to see that he's enough. Open their eyes that they might hear and know and own him who is the light and life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen.